Hi, my name is Saab Johal. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to 30,000 Days, which is about the length, if we are lucky, of the time we have to live on this precious earth. Here, I ask my guests how they fill their 30,000 days with joy, purpose and meaning. I am grateful to have a very appropriate guest for my first show in this first season of 30,000 Days. Hamish McKenzie is the co-founder and COO of Substack, the subscription platform for independent publishers and where I'm publishing this podcast, wherever you may find it yourself. Hamish is a writer and former journalist himself and previously worked in communications for Kick and was lead writer for Tesla. He also worked as a freelance journalist and as a reporter for various publications, including Pando Daily, where he covered startups and technology. Hamish is the author of Insane Mode, how Elon Musk's Tesla sparked an electric revolution to end the age of oil. He is based in San Francisco. Let's get on the call and see what he had to share with me. Hello, Saab. Hey, Hamish. How are you doing? Great to see you. You too. How's it going? Yeah, it's a, it's a stormy day here in Wellington. Torrential uh, bands of rain dumping on the house every now and again and a strong northerly. So you'll be familiar with that. Beautiful. Sounds almost like summer. <laughs> and where are you at the moment? I'm in San Francisco in my office. Yep. And what's the weather doing outside? Oh, it looks beautiful, actually. Let's see what the, what the temperature is. 19, 21 degrees, sunny, no clouds. Oh, you'll have to make sure you get out for a little bit of a walk or something after this, eh? Yeah, I should. Yeah, there's sometimes I fail. I fail to do that sometimes and I should do it more often. So thinking about 30,000 days, what day are you on right now? Rough ballpark. You don't have to give too much away. Yeah, I looked it up using the little calculator you sent me and I'm coming up on 15,000. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm approaching it. Okay, so nearly at the halfway point. Halfway, yep. Yeah, so tell me, in your reflection when you were doing that calculation, thinking about kind of what you've done so far, maybe a couple of meaningful patches, how long were you in those patches and what were you doing? What did it mean for you? The way that you described this to me and the questions that you sent through earlier was, you know, what were these stretches of time and how did they influence my life? And I did give that some thought. And there are a bunch of sort of major episodes but a couple of that stood out for me. One was leaving my hometown of Alexandria after high school to go to university at Otago in Dunedin and going particularly to Carrington Hall, which is the hall of residence where I stayed in my first year, because that moment took me away from this environment in Alexandria where I went to Dunstan High School. It's a great school, but it's, um, it's more sort of farming community oriented and sports oriented and uh, academic achievement wasn't necessarily like the top thing that people prioritized. And in Dunedin, I got introduced to a bunch of people who were really cool and very smart and who thought about academic achievement as something worth pursuing. And I wasn't I wasn't a huge nerd um, and I didn't prize academics above all else in my life, but it was really refreshing and interesting to suddenly be introduced to this crowd of cool people who valued an intellectual life and valued sort of pushing how far they, uh, pushing themselves to see how far they could extend their minds and just being 
dropped into that new kind of environment, new kind of climate was a, a big part of me growing up as uh, an adult and discovering what I liked and what I wanted to be and, and what I wanted to do with my life. So that time at Otago, maybe this is not an original, <laughs> an original idea, but like going to university was a big, a big thing for me and meeting that particular social group I had at Carrington Hall and at Otago, many of whom still my friends today, my closest friends. So that was definitely one thing. Another couple of things I did. Yeah, I also lived in Hong Kong for four years. I went there in 2006. And I went there because I thought I was going to be foreign correspondent. I was straight out of journalism school with a master's degree. And I thought I was going to go write about China and the rise of China just leading up to the Olympics and then beyond. And I ended up going to Hong Kong, where I thought I could report on China from and learn more about China. But uh, instead, I threw a couple of twists and turns, ended up sort of working in digital marketing, journalism, and then entertainment journalism and music journalism. And I had a great time doing all those jobs. But more importantly, I got to see if I could sink or swim in this new country with new, um, a, a, like a culture that was relatively new to me. I went there with only a month's worth of money. I, I told myself, if I can't get a job by the end of this month, I'll have to go back to New Zealand. And it's fine. I love New Zealand. So I've been in Canada before that. And it taught me a a lot about being resourceful and scrappy and being a fish out of water and making new friends and social groups from from nothing. And I also got to live in this incredible city for four years and travel around Asia. So that was a really, really meaningful time as well. And then the third thing I was going to point to was um, going to work at Tesla. I had this crazy, crazy experience where Elon Musk hired me to go be the lead writer for Tesla. And I ended up staying for just over a year, which kind of a long time in Tesla terms. Um, but ultimately, I left because it was a bit too far removed from what I really wanted to be doing with my life, which was something a lot closer to writing or independent writing, being an author. So I left to write this book uh, about electric cars. But at Tesla, I got exposed to Elon Musk and to all the people around him and to this company that was operating at a peak level and moving extremely fast and being extremely ambitious and creating uh, amazing kind of world-changing products. And that was eye-opening to me in a similar way to going to Dunedin and being surrounded by a new social set was because here I got to see from the inside how these massive things are achieved and what it means to go fearlessly after huge goals. And that was a wild time, lots of ups and downs, but ultimately I took away from it that you can go after big goals. You can shoot for something really ambitious and it's going to be messy along the way, but it's worth pursuing what you dream of because sometimes you might get a piece of it. That, that's, that's really, really interesting. I, I, the things that stood out for me was, you know, the idea of kind of like, you know, going to university. You know, it sounds kind of like, you know, what people do, but for you, it sounded like there's an exposure there to a group of people whose values were something that was kind of inspiring to you. They value this kind of like academic achievement and, and curiosity. But also then there's the kind of, when you talked about Hong Kong, you know, I'm trying to string perhaps what theme there is here, but also stretching yourself in terms of going into a new environment, new people, but even wider, a new, a new culture in terms of language and the way that people do things. And then another cultural shift, big shift in terms of, you know, people who get things done working in Tesla, exposure to Elon Musk. And you say it like it lasted for a year, but it sounds like it was a really impactful year for you too. So just thinking about, you know, those three things, but perhaps other things that you've been thinking about, I'm wondering if there's um, something that's bigger than you and these experiences that have emerged as a bit of a theme in your 15,000 days so far in your journey. What are the sorts of things that help you to make sense of your path so far? 
Well, I'm perfectly of the age where I got to witness the dramatic effect that the internet has had on culture, has been having, is having on culture. And so, you know, at university, first year, I did Comp 101 and in that class registered my first email address. <laughs> it's a Hotmail account. So I didn't have an email address until I got to university and it was like that level of introduction to the internet. And it must have been 2000. And, you know, studied and actually was the editor of the student newspaper at um, Otago University, Critic, and helped update the website so that the magazine lived on the website. Then went to Canada, studied journalism, and while a university, while a graduate student of journalism in Canada, immersed in this environment where people were already talking about the massive effect that the arrival of the internet was having on the business model for media and newspapers shutting down and like jobs being increasingly scarce for journalists. And so we were thinking about what our future might look like once we had graduated from this program, trying to find work as a journalist. And then going to Hong Kong and writing about the digital marketing industry, just as Facebook and Twitter were coming along 2007, 2006, 2007. And those things were starting to pick up steam and cultural relevance. Seeing that whole new culture around social media starting to emerge and the continued acceleration of the breakdown of traditional media business models, even though I was working for a sort of print magazine at that time. And after leaving Hong Kong, well, I helped launch Time Out magazine in Hong Kong. And I was overseeing the website for that. Saw Time Out go through its different phases. Like Time Out was starting to dwindle in terms of its dominant paper magazine product, but starting to flourish in terms of its international products and its web products. And now Time Out is a shadow of its former self. It's going through that transition and, and impacted by the internet. And then leaving Hong Kong, coming to the States as a freelancer, and then ending up writing for this uh, new site called Pando Daily, which was covering startup ecosystem and technology companies, and especially having a focus there on new media business models and the attempts by Silicon Valley and other technology startups to save the media in a way and then watching as the acceleration of media's traditional media's decline continued so i've got to see all the way through my career the impact of the internet on culture but also more specifically on media business models and media and this like industry in which i have forged my career so i guess those yeah i i would say like the internet plus media is uh, like a thread that has run throughout my career and my studies prior to studying work. Yeah. So, so just picking up on that, it's really interesting. You, you, you're living through this time of change and, and mapping your own desires and career upon that. Um, but for you, what's, what's, what new ideas are emerging for you, but also what are you leaving behind? What ideas served you well up to this point, but you're now thinking, Hmm, there's perhaps something else going on here for you. One thing that has changed a lot is that there used to be a more steady sort of linear progress with occasional black swan events that would change history. But now it seems like the black swan events are common and frequent. And I actually don't see that changing. I think we're going to live now in this forever hyper state of change and that we'll all be fighting for these moments of calm and reflection and breaks from the, the tumult of of everyday life and especially changes it's expressed through culture on the internet, which is a lot of culture, if not all culture now. I do think you could use journalism as a, as a metaphor. The things that are being eroded in journalism and the media business are the stuff of slow storytelling and hard painstaking work, doing lots of reporting and phone calls and fact checking and research and digging old documents out of archives and the library and things. And it's been replaced or at least the pressures of the business model lead to it's being replaced 
to a large extent by quick takes and opinionation and sort of skip a few steps in the in the editing process but i do think that that like painstaking slower process of building things over time and being careful and digging deep instead of just skimming across the surface really important and i think that is true at the wider level in culture as well and how we think as humans and how we understand each other and how we seek to work together we're pushed and encouraged and cajoled into having instant reactions to everything and moving fast with this incredibly quick news cycle where you know in the us there were these two world changing well actually america what would have once been america changing mass shootings buffalo and then a texas within one week and we barely caught our breath from one moment before moving on to the next moment. But then things are moving that fast in, in politics and everywhere else in culture. And it's very hard to stop and catch a breath. And it's very hard to see through clear eyes and think, what's really going on here? And what are the like, what are the deeper roots that underpin all of this? And it will take an act of will by humanity to not get too caught up in those fast cycles and to be able to give ourselves the space to stop take a breath and see things with clear eyes and we've got some tough challenges to overcome and it's going to require us to be more in that slow thinking mode mm, you know i absolutely agree with you in terms of you know this need for deeper engagement with you know research and understanding what's actually going on taking a step back being able to be strategic that slow thinking responding rather than reacting so if all of this is going on and this is what the world it looks like and you think perhaps this is what we need what's your place in this where do you see your place in meeting this need of what the world needs right now yeah, well, what I do is Substack, and Substack is our attempt to provide an alternative media ecosystem. It is a reaction to social media and an attempt to move, help everyone move on from the attention economy. The attention economy is like predicated on these incentives based around creating content and behaving in certain ways that might get points and instant rewards on social media, where the ecosystem is very fast twitch and where the stuff that plays well and the stuff that is rewarded is not necessarily the stuff that builds understanding or helps people work together. With Substack, the incentives are built around trust and deeper relationships. It doesn't, you know, at first glance, it might look sort of like social media, but it's actually totally different social media. Substack is about taking your mind back as the reader and not sublimating yourself or submitting yourself to the cut and thrust of these news feeds that are sorted by provocative content, but that's sorted by this, that are kind of organized by content that is most likely to addict you, most likely to engage you, and that is not interested in using your attention wisely. It's interested in the opposite. Substack is about helping you make choices as a reader, as the strongest version of yourself, where you're thinking about who you're going to follow which ideas you're going to let into your head, treating your information diet almost like your food diet. So you're not just gorging on junk food, but you're planning and thinking about how to feed your body and feed your mind. And so that is mostly underpinned by Substack's business model being based on paid relationships between readers and writers. Readers choosing to pay writers who they think are doing valuable work. And then writers having a clear path to sustainability and a clear way to make money by doing thoughtful, engaging work that rewards those relationships that the readers have chosen to opt into. And that way, the readers then become the customers. 
they're not the product. They're not something being sold off as a bundle to advertisers. And from the platform writer relationship, Substack, because of our business model, we just take 10% of any subscription revenue the writer generates. We can only do well if the writer does well. The writers are our customers. The writers are not our product. And so all the incentives are well aligned there. Like Substack can only succeed if the writers succeed. As writers own everything. They own their mailing list. They own their content. They own their payments relationships. And, re- and writers can only succeed if the, if the readers feel they're being well-served and it's slower and more considered. It's removed from social media. There's no advertising. There aren't these big flame wars that happen in public. It's a much nicer place uh, to be. It's much. It's reminiscent of the old days of blogging, which was a much nicer place to be. It wasn't perfect. It was a much, much nicer place to be than today's social media. So I feel, I feel like this is a big, important thing that I can make a good contribution to. And if Substack succeeds, I think the effects will be profound, but we're just getting started. Fantastic. As, as someone who's been blogging since 1996, one shape or form, you know, I absolutely value the much more methodical way, not only that I write, but what I choose to read as well and engage with at a deeper level. I actually put time aside for it. It's like, hey, right, this is my Substack reading time and this is my Substack writing time and all the other stuff yes i assign time to but i don't engage as deeply with it and i think what you're doing and what's 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 happening here is a revaluing of the attention that i'm spending and how that's valued by the platforms in which i'm choosing to engage with such that i choose where i not only put my attention but where i put my money rather than other people making those decisions for me and then serving me stuff up treating me as a product rather than as as a reader absolutely i I hear where you're going and i think what you're doing is, is really valuable so thinking about not only your substack kind of like purpose and your mission but also you as a as hamish you know what's left for you in terms of, you know, I mean, you're about halfway through your 30,000 days. What's left for you to explore and, and engage in? What, what do you want to do? Well, I think Substack will always be part of my life. And I'm extremely proud of that. At the moment, though, I'm working very hard, working all the time. It's hard to get a break. It's hard to get a breath. And it's it's a state of stress to live in. And it's good stress most of the time. <laughs> but I would like to not be forever in that state of stress. And I'd like to be able to apply a lot of the energies that I'm currently giving to Substack to my family, be a good father. I've got two young boys, four-year-old, and two-year-old. And I give them lots of good quality time and, and love when I can right now. I'd love to be able to do more and I'd love to be able to do that with more energy. And I'd love to be able to sort of invest in building a great family and being a great father. And I think I would, like to get to a point in my life where that becomes the primary focus and then I can do work as sort of intellectual pursuits on the side and then will likely be uh, related to Substack and uh, Substack in some way and also hopefully we'll get back to more writing and longer form writing so which is kind of being my, my true love so to speak I never meant to be a businessman I just sort of ended up being a startup founder by mistake so yeah I, I don't have big save the world plans at this point beyond Substack. I feel like Substack is a great contribution there. Who knows, I might change my mind and try to do something crazy again later on. But I do have ambitions to really make the most of this life I've got and spend it with people I love and spend it and help um, pass on some good values to my kids. 
Yeah, I, I totally hear you, Hamish. I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old and an 11-year-old myself. So yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying. So just to wind up, I'm just um, thinking about what lessons you might be able to kind of leave us with that you've learned, not necessarily that you want to, you think other people need to kind of like take on board, but what's been important for you in terms of what you've learned in your journey so far? You know, some people say things like, don't try to be someone who you're not. This is something that they've got to perhaps later on in life and they look back going, hey, I spent a lot of time trying to fit in with other people's ideals. What's risen to the top for you as you've been thinking about this call today? Well, something I've been thinking about just generally a lot, well, for many years and it comes in waves of intensity, but I don't know if I have useful life wisdom to pass on to people. I know that's not quite what you're asking, but what I find myself coming back to is just to be grateful to have a life. <laughs> it sounds really obvious, but recognize at a time like this when there's a lot of tumult in the world and a lot of chaos and bad news, that it is a weird thing to have the chance to experience consciousness and to get a shot like of having 30,000 days or whatever it is where you get to experience the universe. And I don't know what's on either side of that experience. I don't know what happens before zero days and what happens after 60,000 days, let's be generous. But I know that like this time here when we get to live and we get to experience life is the best we can possibly hope for. And it, it's a gift in the true sense. And to be able to live a good life on top of that, to have good experiences in that life is the most amazing gift. And so I don't feel like there's a self-help line I can give, but I do think that even with these obvious statements and these obvious acknowledgements about how life works, people tend to undervalue how precious life is, how lucky we are to even have it, have a, like a moment of consciousness here in the, in the universe. I try to remind myself that it'd be crazy to get too caught up in the inane everyday happenings that might bore me or distract me when I've got this ticket to the most incredible possible ride that anyone could hope for. Yeah, valuing that moment-to-moment -moment privilege of having this life where we can look forward to the basics, be with people who we love, and all these things that you've talked about already, but also bigger goals such as, you know, making sure that people can actually genuinely connect with each other in a way that isn't so fueled by platforms or other issues that are seeking to you know, make a fast buck or to divide us in order to promote engagement. All, all these different things, you know, not getting engaged in that is something that I'm hearing from you in terms of, you know, these bigger picture things of just valuing the moment to moment ability to experience life. Yeah, it's, cor it's corny, but like we're all going to die. <laughs> so like what you, you know, just before you, just before you're dead, I imagine you'll look back and consider how you used your life. And I just want to make sure that like, I really used my life. I, I did it well. I think I'm at this stage in life where I'm just trying to like practice this appreciation for what I have and questions like this give me another opportunity to practice that appreciation. So I'm grateful for that. Thank you, Hamish. Grateful for you to, to come on onto the podcast today. Cheers.